just want to say at the outset, I'm grateful for uh, the last three weeks of preaching here at Redeemer. Uh, for Duncan last week, Keith the week before, and Brian before that. Um, gave me a little bit of a respite uh, to just sit and be ministered to for a while. But I'm excited to be back with you this morning as we look forward to a new season of ministry. I will say uh, that coming back, they decided to move all the chairs back a little bit. I'm not sure. I guess I was spitting too much previously, but... Um, now, it's just the way the speakers are angled in the room, if you notice, we're a little further back this morning. The way they're angled, they don't quite catch the front row when it's so far up, and so we're pushing things back just a little bit. Um, so I'm going to have to come out and walk among you this morning. Be all right with that? <laughs> uh, I kid, I kid. So, what's well, going to be back this morning? Listen, um, as we get started this morning, uh, kind of talking through Vision Sunday, and at the table afterwards, we'll be sharing some things with you about this next season of ministry. Um, but as we move into this next, into this fall season of ministry and the place that God has planted us, one of the things that's been really just racking my heart over the course of the last three to four months is this, this idea of church health, of Redeemer becoming a healthy church. Um, listen, I got a message in one of my apps. My uh, doctor's office actually has its own app, app that I can now pay my bill and see medical tests, you know, results and all those kinds of things. And um, one of the things I noticed when I opened up the app the other day is it flagged me that it was time for my annual physical. I'm really excited about that, um, scheduling that. Now that I'm over 40, I get to go in and let them poke and prod me and do all kinds of strange things to me. Uh, but my annual physical. Listen, one of the reasons the doctors continue to encourage you to come on an annual basis is because they want to help you identify issues before they become problems. Right? And they want to give you counsel about how to address those issues before they become problems. Oftentimes, though, whenever we neglect the counsel of our physicians, of our medical doctors, we do so to our own harm and we do so to our own detriment. They can identify an issue and we say, oh, thanks, doc, we'll see you next year. And we come back the next year and it's only gotten a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And when we neglect it, we do so to our own harm. I had uh, the unfortunate uh, responsibility this week of, of leaving uh, here and driving down to South Texas to be with my family is my mom my mom's sisters passed away earlier this week. They did the funeral on Thursday. I drove there Wednesday, back Thursday, uh, but it, spent time with my family, was there for my mom, grieved with them, saw cousins and aunts and uncles on my mom's side of the family I hadn't seen in a very long time. Um, and I have one particular family member, I've, we went to lunch afterwards at somebody's home, and this is one of my mom's brothers, one of my uncles, uh, who had been diagnosed with diabetes many years before, uh, and just f has f neglected the counsel of his physicians, failed to take any action on the disease that was now ravaging his body, and so as a result of that, he's now in a wheelchair with an amputated foot due to diabetic neuropathy. And so as I was eating lunch with them, uh, and just kind of observing, right, just a fly on the wall a little bit, just watching my family interact, um, and watching him eat after having an amputated foot in a wheelchair with diabetes, the dude, I mean, he's in his 80s, right, so maybe a little bit of grace there, but he was just crushing carbs, right? 
the big old pot of jambalaya that one of the folks in, in the community had made, and he was just hammering all of that, man. Uh, he's, when he got done with the big, big plate, two helpings of jambalaya, he asked his wife to go get him a slice of cake and some banana pudding, and so he's just crushing the banana pudding. And then he chases all that down with two fully leaded sprites, right? He's just kind of, he, did, he has no concern over the fact this disease is in his body and neglecting the counsel of his physician, and he's done so to his own harm, and he's really just accelerating his path toward death. Right? We know people like that, who when they receive counsel, when they receive wisdom about the condition that they find themselves in, just they, they don't heed it very well. Maybe some of you have been in that position physically before. But listen, I want to say something to you this morning, that whenever we come across the teachings of Scripture that are clear and plain, and we neglect them, we do so to our own harm. We do so to our own demise. And listen, we do that personally at times in our lives, whenever we chart a course or a path for our lives that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. But at times, that also affects a whole body, can't it? A whole church body at times. And so, as I've thought over the course of these last several months about what a healthy church looks like, what does it mean to be a healthy church? Uh, there's several marks that come to mind, and I want you to know these marks are going to fill our preaching ministry at Redeemer for the next three to four months. Now, there's more marks than these three, but these are going to be the three marks we're going to emphasize over the next several months. And the first one is this, is conversion. A healthy church is marked by conversions. People coming to faith in Jesus and having evidence and assurance of that faith in Jesus, that there really is a walk with God there. And so starting in mid-September all the way through Advent, we're going to be preaching through the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is all about evidences and assurances of faith. How do you know that you're a Christian? Is it because you walked in aisles? Is it because you signed a card? Is it because you got dunked in some water? How do you know that you've been born again? You've passed from death to life and from darkness to light and despair to hope and that you actually have a living hope and have been born again. How do you know those things? John lists evidences and assurances in his little epistle there at the end of the New Testament of true, legitimate, authentic faith that you have been converted and so we're going to spend time in 1 John this fall. We're also going to spend some time looking at uh, another mark of church health. It's qualified in biblical leadership. And so as we press into that mark this fall, over the next several weeks, subsequent to this one, starting next week, we're going to be looking at this issue of deacons. Right, we have elders here in the life of our church, pastors who shepherd and teach and guide, but we're going to be introducing this concept, biblical concept of deacons and the diaconate ministry. And so over the next several weeks, we'll talk about the calling of deacons and the character of deacons. And we're actually moved toward taking deacon nominations and installing deacons here in the life of Redeemer Church to serve the tangible, practical needs that exist in our body and our community. And so we're going to spend some time looking at qualified and biblical leadership. But another mark of a healthy church that we're going to dive into this morning is this, is meaningful membership. It's meaningful membership. Right now, listen, when, when, when I, I say the word membership, some of you kind of like put on the brakes a little bit because you're like, ah, there's, there's, there's only six chapters of 1 Timothy. There's not a seventh chapter of 1 Timothy where it says, thou shalt becomest a church member. Right? And so when you, you're like, I'm not, where, where are you getting that from? 
Listen, while it is true, Titus only has three chapters. First Timothy only has six. The pastoral epistles about life in the church and church order nowhere speaks of church membership like we would define it. But listen, what I want to share with you this morning are what I believe to be five evidences the New Testament gives us for meaningful membership in the life of a particular church with a particular people. At Redeemer, we do hold formal membership here. And so when it comes to nominating deacons and voting on elders and voting on budget and participating in the life of the body in that capacity, that is limited to membership. And here's why we limit it to membership. I'm going to give you five reasons this morning. You with me so far? Right, five evidences the New Testament gives us for a church membership, even though there is no verse you can just rip out and go, see, there it is. And the first one is this. The, old, the New Testament commands elders to exercise oversight and care in the life of a particular church. In the New Testament, elders or pastors, they're likened to shepherds. Shepherds out in the fields who are working with sheep and they're commanded to oversee and care for the flock. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-3, to listen to what Peter says to the elders that he's writing to. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, nobody's twisting your arm, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, in other words, to profit off of the church, but to serve the church. He says eagerly. Verse 3, not domineering and exercising lordship over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter commands elders to exercise oversight and care as shepherds in the life of the church. And that imagery of shepherding, listen, there are many pastors who are in pulpits across our nation who are rejecting the whole concept or image of a shepherd today in preference of things like Cultural architect, like that's my title, that's what I do, right? I'm the CEO of this church, so I run things. They're rejecting the imagery of shepherding because the way that churches have become organized and structured in modern America, right? They're responding to that and saying we need new images rather than going back to the Bible and saying this is the image, how do we organize? And how do we function this way? But this imagery of shepherding in the Bible, uh, in the work of elders, it leads us to believe that the work of eldering or, elder, or being an elder or a pastor in a church involves several things. First, to protect and to keep the sheep. Protect and keep. See, a part of elders' work is to guard and keep Jesus' church from being enticed away by other lovers. In fact, when Paul, in the book of Acts, before he leaves Ephesus to go toward Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he was going to die, like, this is the last time I'll be with you, brothers. And so I'm going to gather you all up, all the elders of the church. And listen to what he says to them in Acts 20, 28 to 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own, among you will, from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
See, one of the things Paul makes clear in this text is the Holy Spirit has made them overseers and given them a ministry of care in the church and that whenever he leaves, there will be people who would rise up from among them and come in from outside of them who would try to twist and distort the truth and lead many astray. And he says, you elders are tasked with the role of leading and guiding and protecting and keeping the church. Kind of like the gatekeepers doctrinally of what we believe, defining and defending doctrine. And so that's a part of the work of elders in a particular place with a particular people. He says also to feed and teach. That's the idea of shepherding. Part of an elder's role is to teach and preach in such a way that it feeds and nourishes the church. Remember when Jesus is, is there with Peter there after his resurrection, before his ascension on the beach, and they're by the campfire, and Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? In concert with Peter's three denials of Jesus before his crucifixion. And Jesus over and over again says what? When Peter says, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. One of the, the apostles, one of the earliest and best preachers, stands up at the day of Pentecost, right? 3,000 people come to faith, baptized. The church grows exponentially because he's feeding the sheep. It's a part of the elders and pastors' responsibility to feed these particular sheep in this particular place in this particular church. Third, shepherds also lead and tend to the flock. Right? They, they lead the church toward the participation in Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations. Of all nations. And this kind of oversight, listen, is not only oversight. Here's what we tend to think when we think of oversight. We think of oversight of programs and budgets and facilities. That is not what the, biblical, what the Apostle Paul had in mind. He has in mind the oversight of people. Not just not programs, not budgets, and not facilities, but people in the life of a local body. And as they exercise that oversight, they do with attentive care and concern for people in all different types of seasons of life. They exercise concern for those who are teachable and those who believe they already know everything they need to know. Anybody have kids like that in your home? Or they exercise concern and care for those who are giving generously and those who aren't giving at all. They exercise concern for younger brothers and elder brothers, those who are living in hard-hearted sinful rebellion and those who are living in hard-hearted self-righteousness. Both. Concern about both. Care for both. They concern, have a concern for those with strong consciences whose consciences allow them to exercise all sorts of liberties in Christ. Those who have weak consciences whose consciences permit them from exercising those liberties and those who are tempted at every single turn in life. They're concerned about them. They exercise care for those who are well and those who are able to serve. Those who are sick and those who are homebound. Those who are hospitalized and those who are on hospice. They exercise concern for those whose hearts are hurting, those whose hearts are healing in the process right now, those whose hearts have yet to be shattered and they're still kind of living in this little naive bubble about how everything in life is really hunky-dory and I'm good. And I can't understand why some people just can't get over some things because I haven't tasted much of life yet. They exercise concern for those in the deepest of valleys and those at the peaks of the mountains, those who just buried a child or just gave birth to one. Those who just lost a spouse or a loved one. And those who are looking forward to the joys and delights of marriage. 
They're concerned for those who are present and those who are absent, those who appear to be maturing and those who appear to be stuck. Those who are, who are habitually wayward and wandering. They have a concern for those who are living in harmony and peace and those whose lives seem to be broiled in the midst of disputes that need resolution. When the Bible says to lead and tend, yes, there is vision, there is direction, but primarily the elders' work of leading and tending is not programs, but people. People. So listen, you're like, what is that? how does that have to do anything with church membership? Let me tell you why. If the Bible commands elders to exercise oversight and care for the flock of God that is among them, among them, he's not commanding them to exercise oversight among those who are in another church or those who are part of a parachurch ministry and organization or those who go to a weekday Bible study with friends in their neck. Listen, all those things are good. But he's saying, those who are among you, those who are walking with you, those who are, who, who, who are committed in this place to these people, exercise oversight, care for them, be concerned for them, walk alongside them, shepherd them. Because God has made you an overseer in this place with these people in this church. I say all of that to, really to get to the second one. Because there's, there's on the heels of the command to exercise oversight is this other command in the scriptures as well to members of churches in Hebrews chapter 13 where the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, obey your leaders, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. One of the things the Bible commands of believers is to submit to the leaders that God has placed in, uh, in their midst. Those elders that the Holy Spirit has made overseers in a given particular church, He's saying to those under their leadership, obey them, submit to them. Right? They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to answer to God. It's one of the, as a pastor, I just want you to know, it's one of the scariest verses in the Bible for me. That one day I'm going to have to answer for the way that I tended, fed, led, cared for those that God had entrusted to this flock. And so he says, submit to your leaders. And the question then is, for whom will I, as a pastor or the elders of this congregation, have to answer to God for? Is it for everyone who walks through these doors on a Sunday morning? Is it for the, like, we've had some, a lot of these at Redeemer, like the one and dones, right? They come in one time and they sit under the preaching of the word and they sing with us. Maybe they're here on a weekend where we're taking communion together and they're a believer and so they come forward because we don't practice closed communion only for members. We open it to anybody who is a repentant, born again child of God. And so they come forward and receive communion, but they never come back. Am I accountable to God for them? Am I accountable to God for those who say, when I go to church, I go to Redeemer, right? And, and they're just they're kind of floating out there. They show up occasionally. Maybe they're connected in a group, but they're not really integrated in the life of the church. For those who, am I, am I accountable for those who, as, as, as the scriptures would say, habitually neglect the assembling of themselves together? Am I accountable for regular attenders? Listen, I want you to know that's not a biblical, there's nowhere in the Bible that has a category of regular attender. 
It's a category we've created in church culture to identify people who are kind of like serial daters. Right? They just kind of move from church to church. Maybe spend a year here, two years there, six months here. They just kind of keep moving and hopping around. Am I accountable for them? I believe that what the Scriptures teach is the people that I am accountable for, I must give an account to God of those who have submitted themselves willfully and intentionally to the leadership of a given body of elders in a particular place in a particular church. That's who I have to give an account for. That's who our elders must give an account for. This is why we hold what we call covenant membership here at Redeemer. Right? Some of us are used to what we might refer to as common law membership. Right? You know what common law marriage is? Common law marriage is like, you know, we're not intentionally stepping forward into the bonds of holy matrimony and covenant union before God and friends and family and committing ourselves to each other. But... And we've been living together for so long and we're just kind of, we, we act like we're married. We present ourselves as if we're married, right? And so you kind of just slide backwards into marriage, right? And so that's, that's oftentimes how people find themselves to be what they would consider to be a member of a church. It's because they, they've, they, they've, they've come enough, maybe they've been in six months or a year or two years, and they look at each other like, it's all right with you, it's all right with you, it's all right with me, all right? And so we just... This, this is home, right? And we just kind of slide backwards into membership. There's not an intentional stepping forward to say, we're committing to this place and to this people to be used by God and see what God would do in our lives among them. Right? And when we talk about covenant membership here at Redeemer, some of us get nervous about that language because we don't see that, like, there's... No, Amaziah 3.12 that says, sign a membership covenant and be a part of a local church. Right? But listen, listen, some of you are very comforted by the fact that we have a doctrinal statement that says, here is in a nutshell what we believe the Bible teaches about orthodoxy, right? Belief. Well, I want you to know what our membership covenant, all it is, is this, this is what we believe the Bible teaches about right practice. In a nutshell, the same way, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right? Doctrine and belief, right? Practice and living. And the membership of covenant doesn't cover every single thing that, you, that we're responsible to do as believers, but the categories of those things, right? And so we just try to outline what we believe a responsible church member looks like as they submit themselves to God and to a body of elders and to a church body in a given place. The Bible commands the submission of church members and without church membership where you're intentionally stepping forward into something rather than sliding backward into it, then can you really say, yes, we're submitting ourselves to this, these elders, these people, and this place. Third, third, church discipline. Right, this is one of those things we talked about earlier, like if you neglect the teaching of the Bible, just like the neglect the counsel of a physician, you do so to your own detriment. Right, this is, these next two are ones that have been neglected habitually in the life of many evangelical churches over the course of the last century. And, and, and church discipline, listen. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, the gathered body. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector, somebody who does not know God. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus says, if somebody sins against you, then you first go to him face to face, one on one. And you, con- you confront that. You talk through it. You go with concern and compassion. Seeking to win your brother, not win an argument, right? There's a difference between those two things. Not to be vindicated. And you're going to make this right. Retribution. But you go in love and compassion. Trying to win your brother, saying, I see you erring and my heart grieves and I want to see you brought back in. And he says, if he refuses to listen to that one-on-one, face-to-face, coffee table appeal, and you take two or three with you, Preferably two or three people that know them in the situation as well. Not random individuals. (laughs) Right? Even people who saw or heard what was said, what was done. And you go and again, confront in love with compassion. He says they refuse to listen to the, the two or three. Then you take it before the church, the gathered body. And if they refuse to listen to the church, he says, then you treat them as a Gentile or tax collector, somebody who does not know God because what they're doing is they're hardening their heart in unrepentance. Right? Church discipline is not to be exercised by a lone ranger, vigilante, looking for vindication and justice in the midst of the congregation. Nor is it to be exercised by an ungroup, unruly group of elders. He's like, man, these people are standing in the way. Let's just kind of cut them out and we're going to keep moving. No, he says church discipline is exercised by the church, the body. Because he says at the end of that verse, there's something significant about when the body gathers together, the church gathers together, and together in unity makes decisions. Right? How do you do that? Apart from stepping forward with intention, saying, I'm going to submit to these leaders and to these people. Fourth. Well, before we get to number four. Listen, if without church membership, to try to exercise church discipline, oftentimes if you go to somebody and you, and you begin to, with compassion, love, trying to win your brother or your sister, and you begin to confront and I had this experience, I don't know if you have, but like in our individualistic age, many times people will look at you and say, who are you? Who are you to be about my business? Listen, without formal church membership where somebody is saying intentionally, I'm going to submit myself to these leaders in this place and these people, then church discipline just doesn't work. Because even if, you, if somebody does enter into covenant membership in a place and you go to them and they say, who are you? Because they still might. Because we still live in a very individualistic age where my business is my business, it's not your business. They still might look at you and say, who are you? And you say, we are those that you have covenanted with for the witness of Christ in the world and for your own maturation and growth and holiness. 
Fourth, excommunication. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. Paul's writing to a really jacked up church in Corinth. Okay? These, they're like wheels off church in Corinth. And listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, let me, let me clarify what I mean, Paul says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers and our, or idolaters. Since then, you would, have, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul says. In this text, Paul says there's a distinction, and it must be a, a maintain a distinction between the world and the church. There must be a distinction between those two. He says those who are outside, he says we have no business judging them. He says only God is able to do that. Now listen, when you hear the word judge, so many of us just got, we, the hair stands up on the back of our neck, right? Our, our fingernails grow about three inches, right? Because we only think of the word judge in one way. We think of it as condemn people. We're condemning people when we judge them. I think that's, 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 that's one way to judge, Another way to judge is just to say, this is right. I'm going to make a moral judgment here between this is right, this is wrong. This is holy, this is unholy. This is healthy, this is unhealthy. I'm not condemning you. I'm just trying to draw some lines and show you clearly what is good for you and what will destroy you. And Paul says, listen, we are to make it our business to draw those lines internally in the church to maintain the distinction between the church and the world. He says, while we're to associate with the, those, those people who practice immorality in the world, since if we, if we weren't to do that, it'd be like, beam me up, Scotty, as soon as I'm saved, right? I go to be with Jesus as soon as I'm converted. But that doesn't happen. We're still here in this world, so you have to have relations with them, engage with them, right? He says, it, it, it's not possible not to. He says, what I'm saying is to distinguish yourselves from those who are living by practicing immorality, who claim the name of Christ enter within the church. He says, you've got to draw a line to distinguish the two. He says, remove, purge the evil person from among you. He says, there's point, his point is this, is there are times in the church where the church has to make a judgment call. Has to make a judgment call. The church, not an individual in the church, but the church has to make a judgment call. Not toward those who are outside, but toward those who claim to be Christians when they're living in unrepentant sin. So you work through one-on-one. -on -one. You work through two to three to one. You work through the church to one. They continue to harden and harden and harden and harden and live in unrepentance. He says, he says at some point you have to draw a line and say, let's distinguish between you and us. Not that the church is full of perfect people who are all looking down their noses at everyone else. The church is full of sinners. The church is full of, uh, full of repentant sinners. Repentant sinners. That's who composes the church, not unrepentant sinners. There's a difference between those two things. Right? And so that discipline gets exercised and excommunication, listen, it sounds a little harsh, sounds a little medieval, like Roman Catholicism. Right, let me tell you what we don't mean by that. 
by excommunication, we don't mean that we're banishing people to hell by our judgment. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is this. We don't have the authority to banish people to hell. Only God does. But for a church to excommunicate someone is for the church to say, you've given us prolonged public evidence of unrepentant sin to no longer find your profession of faith to be one that is credible. Prolonged public unrepentance of sin so that we no longer find your profession of faith credible and we're treating you as an outsider. And as an outsider, what we're saying is this, that you're no longer allowed to, that's what excommunication is, you're no longer allowed to approach the Lord's table and take the body and blood of Christ in vain and trample it underfoot. And so in the same way that we would give uh, uh, an admonition to those who are not Christians among us on Sundays and say, listen, if you're not a believer, you just watch and witness as we take of the bread and the cup and remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. So also someone who has been excommunicated, we want them here. We want them hearing the gospel. We want them to see the gospel declared and demonstrated. But in the same way that non-Christians, we don't welcome them to the Lord's table, so also they would not be welcome to the Lord's table as they live in unrepentant, prolonged, public denial of the teachings of Christ. That's what it is. That's what we're talking about when we say excommunication. It's essentially this. It's essentially the church removing their affirmation of that person's profession of faith. Right? It's kind of like a passport. Right? You say, well, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. Right? Well, you, can, you can say that all day long if, you, if you're traveling abroad and you don't have a, a U.S. passport right? without a stamp on it, without a seal on it. So excommunication is like, it's like the church at some point, in order to remove that affirmation of their, their profession of faith, they had to affirm that affirmation of their profession of faith. Right? We're not stamping your passport any longer. Until we see evidence of repentance. We see fruit being born in keeping with repentance in your life. Without church membership, this this what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 really means nothing. It means nothing. And finally, uh, well, before finally, I want to say this. Listen, all this is done out of love. Because when we talk about church discipline and excommunication, some of you are like, I've been there. Right? I've been deflocked. I heard somebody tell me that recently. Right? I've been deflocked. Sometimes that's not done out of love, out of compassion. Right? All this we're talking about is done out of compassion, care, concern, love. To win people, not to drive them away. But sometimes they choose to drive themselves away. Finally, fifth, another last reason is this, the service of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes these words. He says, For just as the body is one and many, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of the same spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say to the hand, 
uh, or the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again of the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on the part, those parts of the body that we think less honorable will bestow the greater honor. On our unpresentable parts, they're treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul has a vision for the church that he communicates in this metaphor of the body, of it being connected and accountable. So that not one person in it is elevated above another. He says, if, if one suffers, all suffer. If one rejoices, all rejoice. So we grieve together, we rejoice together because we're connected to each other and we're accountable for each other. He says, that's why the hand cannot say to the foot or the foot to the hand or the eye to the ear or the ear to the eye. I have no need of you because we need each other because there's a sense in which the body must be connected and accountable or it's a cadaver. Right? It's a cadaver. Paul doesn't envision there being arms that are amputated from the body and just kind of like dragging themselves around doing stuff, you know? <laughs> or legs that are sliced off just kind of hopping around, going places and kicking people. Right? He, had, he doesn't envision that. He says we're all connected and accountable to each other. And the way that we serve each other and the way that we exercise our gifts for the sake of the body and not for ourselves because we're committed to a people in a place, a particular church. Right? And so we exercise our gifts there. So a part of what that means for us at Redeemer is this, is that we are, you, if, for folks who are not stepping forward in membership, what I would say to you is that you're limiting your capacity to lead and serve here. Right? We would never have an elder who's not a covenant member in this church or a deacon who's not a covenant member in this church. Right? We, 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 we've, we're, we've drawn a line and said, listen, we're not going to allow non-members to teach life groups or to teach in our kids' ministry or to teach in our student ministry. Right? Because we want to know, first of all, they're affirming our doctrinal statement. If they're going to be teaching the truths of the Bible, we want to know what they're affirming. Right? They're not just kind of like, man, I like the preaching, I like the music, so we're just kind of here. It's good with you? Good with you? Yeah, it's good with me. Right? No, we're stepping forward to affirm those things and say, yes, we'll come under that leadership. Yes, we can submit to that doctrine, that teaching, and reproduce it in those places. Right? And so there's a limitation on the areas in which people are able to serve, the things in which they're able to do, uh, not being a part of the body. Not being connected and accountable and exercising their gifts under oversight. So for those five reasons, we believe church membership, those New Testament evidences, right? No proof text, 
No Titus chapter 4. But those five reasons. And so let me say two things as we close. To two different groups of people who are in the room. If you're not a member here at Redeemer, and maybe you've been dating for a while, right? Maybe you've been a little bit afraid of commitment. Um, you know, there are people like that. You just date perpetually. Let me say something to you this morning. I want to encourage you to move toward membership with us. Right, if this is, you're like, I like the preaching, I like the music, I love the people, I see God working here, then move toward membership. Are you, are, so let me give you a series of questions. Are you a Christian? Have you repented of sin and trusted in Christ? Which is the only way to be saved. There is no other means, right? Becoming a church member doesn't make you a Christian. There are people who bounce to and fro on all kinds of church membership roles who have never really been converted. Right? And so if you're coming from another church, it doesn't make you a Christian. Are you a Christian, repentant of sin, trusted in Christ? Have you been born again and passed from death to life and darkness to light and despair to hope? Is Christ your joy? Is He your light? Is He your salvation? Do you look to Him? Do you lean on Him? Do you rest in Him? Do you find hope in Him? Is He your only source of standing before God and that you cling to Him in the midst of all the distresses of life? Have you found that there is a love for God that has been awakened within your soul that did not used to be there? One of the greatest ways to know if there is, there is real, vital, living faith you've really been converted is there a love for God and a love for his people and a love for his word where before it was like no it's all right are you a Christian have you been baptized have you publicly borne witness to your faith in Jesus or is your Christianity still just a private matter in your own life have you been buried with Christ in baptism raised to walk in newness of life giving public demonstration and witness to friends, family, and anyone who would be an onlooker and allowing the church to come alongside and say, yes, we see these graces at work in your life. We see God at work in your life. We see you being raised and living this new kind of life under the lordship and leadership of Jesus. Have you publicly declared your love and loyalty to Him, your allegiance and affection to Him? Right? Or is your faith in Jesus still just kind of in the closet? Maybe you take it out on Sunday mornings every once in a while and then Bible studies and you put it back in. Have you ever publicly taken that step? Listen, while Christianity is a deeply personal relationship with God, it is not a private one. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that it's a private one. What that means is this, is my Christian life is your business. And as an elder and overseer in this church, your Christian life is my business. Because it's not a private relationship. It is a personal one. If that's you, if you've, if, you've taken, if you've come to faith in Jesus and you've been baptized or want to be baptized, then attend review on September 9th. Hear about why we're here, who we are, what we believe. Attend the covenant members class on September 16th where we're going to talk to you about what it, what it is to be a covenant member here. What you should expect from us as elders. What you should expect of yourself as a member of this church. Which, by the way, the membership covenant is just Bible. That's what it is. Just Bible condensed and to say, this is what we believe about how we should live. Then take that step. Move toward membership. 
After that, participate in an elder interview where one of us will sit down with you and say, share your story with us. Tell us about your testimony, your conversion, how you came to faith in Jesus. Share the God. We'll ask you for the gospel in a nutshell. Make sure you're real clear on what the good news is and what it's not. As people come into membership in the church, we'll make it our business to help you discern and discover your gifts and where they could be employed in the life of this body and used for the glory of God and the building up of His church. In that elder interview. So if you're not a member, move towards that. And if you are, listen, be earnest about your membership. Take it seriously with genuineness. And I'm going to say five things and I'm done, like real quick, I promise. And you're like, right. First, be present. Be present with us. When we gather on Sunday mornings, when we just scatter into groups across our community, when we go serve at Celebrate Fate or at the food pantry or or wherever it is that we're actively engaged as a church, be present. Can you make everything? No, you can't make everything. I can't make everything. You're like, some of you are like, you're the pastor though, you're supposed to be at everything. I can't make everything, but be present consistently. I admonished us a couple of, or several months back, right, right, aim this fall to go four for four here on Sunday mornings. What we, what we mean by that is this, be present four weeks out of the month with us on Sunday mornings and see what kind of holy habits begin to develop out of that and how God begins to work because any given Sunday under the preaching of God's word, any given Tuesday in the meeting of a group, God could begin to reorder and restructure your life and reprioritize things that have been left and neglected. He could work any given week in your life. You don't know when that'll be. So be present consistently. Be active. If you're not serving somewhere and you're a member here, let us help you discern your gifts and discover where they can be employed. Be active. Be open. Be open with your life. Share it with others. Invite people in. Exercise hospitality. Be hospitable with your time, with your energy, with your home, with your, with your life. Be encouraging. I told you I'd be quick, that's four. Be encouraging. Right? When you see things that you think have done, been done well, say them, affirm them. When you see, and then be helpful, that's number five. Right? When you see things that aren't going so well and you have insight, thoughts, that's a part of what it means to be a part of the body, is to come and share them. Right? Don't, mm, don't talk to all the other people about them, right? But if you see something in an area of ministry, you go, that could be improved. I have this idea, then lean into that. Be helpful. Right? So the question for us is this, as a church, are we going to take the, t- the clear teachings of Scripture on these matters? of the oversight and charge to elders to care for the flock of God that is among them. And members to submit to leaders, not back into things, but step forward into them. Into covenant membership, not common law membership. We're going to take seriously the caring for one another by confronting sin, challenging that. At times, opening ourselves up to being wrong as well. And humility, receiving it when people come to us. 
And if someone continues to harden their heart after months of conversation and deliberation and appeals, that we as a church would be willing to say, listen, we're no longer willing to affirm your confession, your profession of faith, because we see you living unrepentantly, publicly, and prolonged in this way. And are we willing to lean into serving the body as those who are accountable because we've come under the authority of a body of elders and a church? I fear that if we don't take these things seriously, we do so to our own detriment. We're going to pray and we're going to sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your kindness to us in Christ. For the love of the Holy Spirit. For the joy with which we're able to celebrate. For the ways in which you are working here. And Father, I pray that we as a church body would never confuse numerical growth with church health. God, those, those two are not the same thing. Always. So give us discernment. Give us wisdom to know. And give us, Father, a willingness to lean into the clear teachings of the Scriptures. That our elders would be exercising oversight through care and concern, not just for programs, but for people of people who have submitted themselves to those leaders by stepping forward towards it, not sliding back into it. And they're opening their lives up to the church to say, say what you see in me. And that we as a church would receive that humbly whenever it's said to us. And if there be those that were to be among us who would continue to move in a path that is destructive, that is tarnishing the witness of Christ publicly. Because they're not resisting sin, but they're giving themselves over to it. They're not fighting for holiness, but they're yielding to the passions of their flesh. Father, give us the courage and compassion to say that your witness is not our witness. And you're not making progress in holiness after months of discussion that we would have the courage and compassion, God, give us the resolve that we would need to distinguish ourselves as a church from the world. That we would have wide open arms to repentant sinners and much patience and grace with unrepentant sinners but be willing finally at some point to draw a line. And that we would exercise our gifts as those who are connected and accountable, not floundering alone. Father, for those who are not members, may they move towards it. For those who are, may we all be earnest and sincere and genuine as we look to become a healthy, healthy body, not a perfect one but a healthy one. We ask it in Jesus' name.